There's a highway that stretches across the 93 days of summer where worship isn't offered to the sun, but to the smoking tire, the S-curve, and the spin turn. And if you ride it, make sure you do it in a Dodge Charger, Challenger, or Durango. Because on this highway, the lines being blurred are the ones between drivers and demons. Welcome to Highway 93. Dodge is a registered trademark. Hello, Island friends. Let me tell you about Tim Eccles. Mr. Tim loves Georgia and helped keep our rates low. He knows everything about energy and has led by example. I hope you listen to his radio show called Energy Matters. Join me in supporting Tim. This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by Arnold Golden and Gregory. Welcome to Energy Matters, a show about how you can save money on your utility bills, use technology wisely, and live a more sustainable lifestyle. Here's your host, veteran energy regulator and clean energy expert, Commissioner Tim Eccles. Thank you, Scott Slate. It's always great to be saving money on that power bill, using technology wisely, and living a more sustainable life. Hey, this is Tim Eccles. I'm vice chair of the Georgia Public Service Commission. You're listening to Energy Matters, my co-host, KC Boyce. Good morning, Tim. Good to be with you. Yeah, good to be with you, KC. I go to Charleston at all, KC? Yeah, I really enjoy Charleston. I've only made it over there a couple of times since we've lived in the South, but man, what a great city. Yeah, we've got a guest today who's driven in from Charleston, Andrew Dunn, works with iTron, business growth manager. Welcome to the Classic City, sir. Thanks for having me. Yeah, but you've been to the Classic City before, haven't you? Because you went to school here. I did. I spent eight good years here. Yeah, eight good years. You're in Charleston now. My wife and I had a friend um, that owned the Hain House. It was a, you know, it's about a couple streets from the Battery down there, and mm-hmm. uh, they would let us come there for almost nothing. Um, and we started taking our board of directors on our charity uh, team pack that I created, and then we started going there for our anniversary and we wound up like spending 15 anniversaries in charleston and you know really got to know that historic district right 82 queen street for the she crab soup and maybe the lobster and grits over there at magnolia uh and casey charleston's just such a unique historic district yeah rich in history and and good food like you said um andrew do you have any favorite restaurants down there well the best meal i had recently was actually at magnolia we had some uh you know some friends in town and had a really good good dinner down there so that's my yeah. probably my going favorite at the moment. i'm taking notes yeah yeah so it, too many it's good a, choices it's a great it's a great town there's a lot of a lot of stuff going on you know in south carolina in a way georgia and south carolina i feel like are two sister states uh, they, they they they're politically about the same they love manufacturing uh they you know have both both have mountains and beaches uh there, there's so many things that that are similar so uh, you like living over there in south carolina i love it yeah being close to the beach like you said but you know three or four hours from the mountains but all the good food and being able to get access to the you know to the outdoors out to the ocean everywhere it's nice yeah i love it yeah you graduated uga 2008 uh physics and astronomy and i mean we had jokes when i was here the first time 78 to 82 about certain majors maybe not real majors like entomology right studying insects and astronomy i mean we likened it to and this is coming from an english major uh, we likened it to like i'm just clarifying library science or basket weaving or underwater basket weaving which was the really advanced course so now some of you are bulldogs through and i'm a triple dog look i'm not making fun of our university but you who went to this university you know that there are jokes on campus about certain things right so Tell me what I mean. Physics—that's not an easy topic. I mean, astronomy maybe maybe different, but physics and astronomy. Tell me about your time there on South Campus. Absolutely, it was it was wonderful. So, my, I have an older brother who was also at University of Georgia, and during that process, he turned to me at one point and said, "Why are you Why are you studying this?" Right. And at the time, I was studying it because it was honestly the most challenging subject matter I could pretty much find on campus. And if any of you are familiar with being in Athens, Georgia, when you're 18, 19 years old, it's a good synergy to have something that pulls you in that direction because there's a lot of other things pulling you in the other direction of having fun having a good time all of my uh 
buddies in my first few years of college were always uh, interested in the astronomy side of it. And I was, uh, it made a big impact on me. I moved out of the chemistry and pre-med field into physics and astronomy and astrophysics pretty quickly. Um, in the first year or two, you know, really studying how in that field you study how everything works, especially beyond the Earth. And then in astronomy, you're able to then take an outside look back at the Earth. And it, it doesn't matter if you're a major in that field. Most people who go through that process have a pretty big impact. They think all the math and fancy formulas are interesting because it seems elusive, but the notion that we have a home planet that's so important and that you can look at it in that realm of how special it is uh, is something that I really took away from it and kind of drove me forward in my career. And it anchored me to have a really excellent experience at UGA, you know, and then do that uh, engineering physics program as well. So, Casey, he's got an Elon Musk connection in the sense that he worked for for Solar City, you're, if you're just tuning in, we've got Andrew Dunn in the studio, of course, Casey Boyce and myself. Um, Andrew, you worked for Solar City, which I think was owned by a, uh, Elon Musk's cousin. Yes. Um, but, and, and with that astronomy and physics major, uh, as you think about the planet Mars now, right? I assume you occasionally think about that, right? Sure. Uh, do you think we'll ever get there? What will the propulsion be to do it? And how will we sustain life there? What type of energy will we have to have there to sustain life? So this is a good question. Recently, it was suggested to me that, you know, how much of an actual uh, process and pathway we have to, to getting to Mars or what other kind of higher level aspirations that might really be connected to, you know, and, and that's kind of what grounds my thinking. And it is, you know, I, I think conserve and protect our home planet first as much as possible. And to get to Mars, um, I, I definitely in the school of thought where I um, don't try to tell the future in that I know that anything is possible. And so I think that I, I give Elon Musk so much credit for basically putting into business you know, process and forming businesses around a lot of the napkin math ideas that I had over the last 15, 20 years. Right? So he's that type of individual who brings, builds these markets. Um, in terms of taking people to Mars and that, this great space race, you know, yeah, I, I wouldn't really comment much on like how we would get there. I know that we would use... Um, renewable energy, a lot of solar power, a lot of the technologies that we're able to you know, harvest and process in space as well, you know, to minimize payload. Um, but a lot of that's, you know, to be determined. When I was in at the University of Georgia, I did uh, some extensive study on work that was done in NASA in the 70s on all the processes it would take to basically inhabit the moon and all the work that you could do there. And there's mm. literally like 60 or 80 studies that were put together into a book on all of the things that you could do on the moon, you know, and a great experiment of what could we do there. And, you know, at the end of the day, the moon and the Mars really don't have much to, to compare with Earth. So again, my focus goes back to our own planet. Casey, uh, are you a Star Trek or a Star Wars guy? Which one? Uh, Star Wars. Okay, so yeah. I'm a Star Trek guy. Um, but usually in in these, you know, in these, you know, shows, Star Trek, Star Wars, if if they are as they travel the the galaxies, right there, they encounter planets that have unique natural resources on mm -hmm. them, right? So you know, there's even mining going on mm -hmm. in a lot of these operations because some of these. You know, some of these uh, mining operations have to do with propulsion and, 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 and allowing these ships to do what they what they need to do at warp factor, whatever. Um, and I mean, what is on the moon or on Mars that we don't have here that would that would make us want to go there? I mean, I, you know, I, I that's a really good question. I By the way, for our listeners who are tuning in to this very deep discussion, I am not an astrophysicist or an expert in any of this stuff, but to your point, I think we've got a lot of what we need here on Earth. And Andrew, to your point, it's really, really hard to get to these places. It's really, really hard to get back from these places. So, you know, if you're if you're adding payload and trying to bring it back, I mean, that just seems to me like there's got to be a better way of doing this, right? And I, I think it starts with, you know, right here at home, right? Yeah. We've got this uh, great human experiment on Earth, and then to take it beyond Mars out, you know, that that's, I think, the ultimate goal, is to travel through space. But I certainly wouldn't make the destination, you know, Mars or the moon, right? That's really, I think, setting our limits pretty short and putting our focus on something beyond, you know, the, the here and now. But, but again, I give credit to you know, the people who push those limits and, and try to get us there. 
Yeah, just a couple more minutes left yep. in this segment. Uh, we're going to talk uh, a lot today with Andrew Dunn. Uh, and we will eventually get into the stuff that you guys hear us talking about. But I'm intrigued because of his astronomy and physics background. Uh, and he worked for this Elon Musk-related company, Solar City, uh, out in California. What about what about these Starlink boxes that that the rocket, uh, the Dragon, is dropping out at every time it goes up there, uh, Andrew? I mean, is it, are these little boxes in low orbit? Do they hold the key? to finally getting everyone connected to the internet. Is, is that going to happen? It's a great, uh, yeah, great segment. So it's again, some of the napkin math, right? Of getting that um, satellite-based communication to everyone on the planet. So yeah, I think so. You know, I think uh, it's one of these things that just wasn't entirely surprising to find out that it was, that that was happening. And um, I'm not a huge fan of having so much debris up there and just having people have freedom to just launch, you know, as many satellites in orbit without having to recover those, you know, and be able to manage any uh, risks and trade-offs. But otherwise, yeah, it's it's an ambitious goal to get everyone, you know, kind of an equitability to uh, communications. Casey, uh, Casey, I, I really think that Twitter is a waste of Elon Musk money and time. Here's a man that's done what he's done with electric cars. It's done what he's done with rockets. And for him to be distracted and turn his attention to a social media platform that doesn't have the kind of value that his other projects have to me. I hope the deal doesn't work and I hope he continues to innovate. Well, so so one, I hope the deal doesn't work um, as someone who really enjoys Twitter. But two, if you think about it from a marketing standpoint, Tesla doesn't spend any money on marketing. Elon Musk has a pretty big following on Twitter. It's about $500 per follower is the price that he's paying, which is a pretty good deal. Well, when we come back, more Andrew Dunn, more astronomy, more physics, more about solar, more about working with utilities, more about the future of the grid, a lot of good stuff. That's Casey and I talk with him. Stick around. I'm Tim Eccles. You're listening to Energy Matters. Hey, this is Tim Eccles. You want to make your car, boat, jet ski look really cool? Use my friends at Jim Rap. That's G-E-M Rap. Just go to Facebook and put in Jim Raps and you'll see what I'm talking about. Hey, Tim Eccles here, host of Energy Matters. Solar's growing like crazy in Georgia, and I certainly say buyer beware. It's great to have companies like Creative Solar USA on the job. Russ, why do folks need to reach out to you? Tim, we're going on to our 14th year, and we have the best staff and most experienced installers in the state to get the job done right. You can find out more at creativesolarusa.com or call 770-485-7438. That's creativesolarusa.com. BMVW is the place in Metro Atlanta to get your used hybrid, plug-in hybrid, or fully electric car. They're located on the south side near the airport, but it is well worth the drive. Go online to look at their inventory at ev-hybrid.com and set up a time to see the vehicle or even drive it for up to three days. I don't know of anywhere else in Metro Atlanta that you can do that. That's ev-hybrid.com, the best deal in town. ev-hybrid.com, ev-hybrid.com. This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by Arnold, Golden, and Gregory, an AmLaw 200 law firm with 180 attorneys in Atlanta and Washington, D.C. They take a business sensibility approach when advising clients. They provide industry knowledge, attention to detail, transparency, and value to help businesses and individuals achieve their definition of success. AGG subscribes to the belief not if, but how. We thank John Gornall and all the attorneys and staff at AGG for sponsoring our show. Hey, Tim Eccles back in the studio with Casey Boyce and Andrew Dunn. He works with ITRON. Uh, he's the business growth manager, graduated UGA 2008 physics and astronomy, went to work in the Bay Area uh, with Recurve. Uh, tell us, I mean, some of the stuff that you were doing, especially with that next company you worked with, with Harney, about the net zero uh, move that people were making out there. Uh, tell me about Recurve and Harney and your experience in California. 
Sure. So no better place to get into you know clean energy and efficiency than the the San Francisco Bay Area, and that was. It, right out of the University of Georgia. So I worked at uh, the engineering school here for a year and then in 2008 was in the San Francisco Bay Area and started in energy efficiency and building performance and modeling buildings and retrofitting buildings. And at that same time was when a lot of the bigger brands of solar, um, you know, behind the meter distributed solar in the U.S. were really starting to t- pop up in the Bay Area, 2008 to 2012. They all started getting a lot of capital and doing a lot of projects. And so there was this natural synergy between the efficiency and retrofitting of buildings and the solar power market opening up. And a lot of the high-end clientele wanted to go all the way right out of the gate. They wanted to make their homes not have much of a energy or carbon footprint. And these, you know, it was somewhat of an early day of that. But a lot of uh, electrification was really the mantra in California back back then was transition everything to electric because in the future we're going to support it with renewables. So it was highly, you know, really efficient heat pump systems, moving everything, you know, water heaters to heat pumps. Um, all electric, you know, full on deep retrofits um, or some level of retrofit supported by renewable energy. So a lot of that was with an aspiration of having a net zero balanced power use. So you talked a little bit about some of the things that folks had to put in to get to this net zero. And, and as I understand it, you know, the idea with net zero is essentially you're producing as much electricity as you're using over, you know, a period of months, years, whatever. Um, what is it actually like? to live in one of those homes i find that i I don't personally i'm close to it but i get my power through a community solar program so i'm not able to look at it that articulately for the the clients you clients right yeah they you know they really take a lot of pride in it and Mm -hmm. so you're able to try to look at how to minimize your your footprint and also it gives some perspective into how to tie your power usage with when there's actual renewable energy being produced, things like that. So it gives you the foundation to step beyond that and trying to use renewable energy to power your life, basically. But in terms of it being a you know a nice home and things like that, is it basically like any other home that you might live in, or are there things that are you know better, worse, different? Yeah. So what we were really helping with was things like um, saving money and help more healthier homes, more efficient and uh, comfortable homes. In the Bay Area, power costs uh, were the the climate was pretty mild, so we were actually helping people make investments based on benefits like comfort and health. Mm-hmm. And then they would transition through you know electric savings and renewable energy just as part of the process for like a longer term value proposition. But um, yeah, so a lot of multiple benefits beyond just uh, the energy side of it, definitely. So better quality of life. And, you know, again, you talked about some of the technologies, heat pumps and, and things like that, uh, that, that folks use. Did you find that it was difficult to be able to hit that net zero target? I mean, was that a stretch or was it fairly straightforward to do if someone had the money to invest in it, right? Well, with the, yeah, so in, in many cases, it would be impossible to actually hit it if there was too okay. big of an energy footprint. You know, we uh, it's a really good question. We'd have you know, homes with a swimming pool and a lots of extra load on the site and a limited availability of area to put solar or some type of renewable power. And in the San Francisco Bay Area, real estate was expensive, right? So it's different than um, if I were doing so in South Carolina on a rural site where we'd have a field next door to provide mm-hmm. all your power. San Francisco Bay Area, you'd be limited by the, the area available for renewables. So that's why the focus on efficiency was really important as well. Andrew, let me, let me ask you, you're, you're a Georgia guy. Yeah. And you went all the way to the West Coast in into the Bay Area. And, and, and they were way ahead of us on a lot of things. Not And it's not that I'm actually running on the same racetrack that they are trying to catch them. I, I may be on a, a little bit different road over here. But what is it about that time in California that was actually driving this? Was it elected officials who... You know, had this philosophy. Was it, was, was it, was it companies that had the money that was kind of pushing everybody in the direction, or was it individual citizens who just woke up caring about this? I, I don't, I don't understand how it got enough momentum to be able to get beyond that chicken and egg yeah. stage. To make, yeah, to make California one of the biggest renewable energy per yes. capita regions in the world, or yes. the best. 
Yeah, it's a, it, well, you named three drivers there, and they're all three somewhat responsible. It was a really great experience for me, you know, moving from the southeast to the west coast and back to the southeast and seeing um, how different everything is. Not the how to compare, but how different and how, how much value you can extract from all this. So on the west coast, you know, definitely more innovative, you know, thinking um, – and as a as a state, they're driving forward a lot of innovation. You know, especially back then in the San Francisco Bay Area, right? That was really your your tech kind of melting pot, and everyone wanted to get into the renewable energy race. And California wanted to innovate, and yeah, the population does generally support that. Um, when you uh, socialize with anyone from the Central Valley, all throughout, you know, every type of person in California. There's just a different, you know, it's a West Coast level of thinking about uh, being okay with that innovation. Whereas if I'm in a South Carolina, it's going to be a more, all right, we're going to do this pragmatically. We're going to you know, reach consensus. We're going to really make sure that we can check all our boxes and, and do things the right way. All right, so very contrasting landscapes, but you can see a lot of value in both of them. California, though, yeah, it was blazing the trail. And for me, it serves as a model for a lot, you know, just the framework and the foundation can be a model, not necessarily how it was done you know, in terms of policy, but knowing that things are possible. I wear a shirt sometimes that says like solar PV, batteries, heat pump, electric vehicles, and microgrids. I wear it around town in Charleston and people will see it and they'll look at it and be checking out at a restaurant and they'll be like, oh, and sometimes they'll say, is that stuff that's going to help save our planet? Just a girl at checkout counter or something, you know, well, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Let's say, well, how's that work? I go, well, you know, that's what we were doing in California 10 years ago, right? And that's what we're doing in other parts of the U.S. now. So you mentioned that they weren't content during that time period to just dip their toe in the water and do it slow that they were they were wanting to go all in they wanted it quickly uh and and i don't know if that kind of characterizes you know a california mentality i don't know i've only lived there for six months in my life so i it was just a short period and i got back here as quick as i could uh because I, I didn't really enjoy it but would you say that california has gone too far that they've that they didn't know when to ratchet it back or that they they kept going on solar when they should have moved to decarbonizing transportation is there is there this risk that you can go too far in something like that i think that being the first to do anything and being that innovator especially in a place as large as california will you know comes with those trade-offs and risks and so um i don't you know i wouldn't necessarily say that i would suggest what has been done being done differently so far but we have had a lot of learning experiences to share you know with other regions um, of particularly you know renewables growth as compared to other resources and distributed energy resources and management of loads in conjunction with that and across the utility landscape there is a you know a um, somewhat of a train wreck of trying to get all these things in line fast enough and so when, like you say when you try to grow it as fast as possible well, some things are going to grow and outpace the other things. And then you need policy to support things like what we're seeing in California this summer with uh, capacity shortfall and needs to be able to support that through things like demand response and like emergency flex programs that they're passing, you know, in a faster rate than you'd ever see policy regulatory proceedings in history because they need to, like many states are going to see, they're going to need to create emergency resources to provide relief to avoid, um, you know, failures on the grid. And so um, it's it's definitely coming with those trade-offs, but uh, you see batteries come to the rescue in a lot of cases in these more innovative markets. We're seeing great innovation around demand response and efficiency and flexible load markets and relief. Really exciting things happening. So yeah, I, I can't complain about that one bit. Well, and it's interesting, Andrew, because you know we've been talking a lot about California so far in this segment, but you know I think California and Texas present some contrast, right? So, you know, Tim, we've talked about Texas on the show before and some of the challenges that they had during their winter storm. They're dealing with a lot of heat right now over the this uh, summer here, you know, already kind of in early summer. And, you know, they've had a lot of their thermal generation, the, the fossil uh, fuel powered plants uh, get knocked offline. Wind and solar really have been coming through for them. But similar to California, they've got a lot of need for that uh, kind of load flexibility right on the, the demand side of things. Um, but they don't necessarily have the same kind of programs like California does. A lot of it's relying on the end consumer voluntarily to, you know, turn up their thermostats or, or whatever the case may be. So it's, it's an interesting contrast, Andrew, between 
between you know a market like California and a market like Texas who have gotten to a very similar place through very different means and are, are dealing with some of the same struggles um, with you know sort of different policy frameworks and different regulatory frameworks. Yeah, just in our last minute in this segment, Andrew, is there good comparisons between California and Texas? The comparison that I would draw mostly is the deployment of large-scale storage in conjunction with or lagging behind large-scale renewables like solar and how that's going to be a big factor in relief in addition to other flexible you know, demand response. So, you know, we need to see battery storage of different types grow at a pace that matches, you know, the renewables. And we're seeing, you know, a forecast of interconnection queue in Texas for solar that's just unprecedented in the hundreds of gigawatts. So we need a lot of batteries. Wow. And California's done a good job with that. So well, far. when we come back, another segment with Andrew Dunn of ITRON, we're going to talk about his work with Solar City and, of course, his work with ITRON and what they're doing. So stick around. I'm Tim Eccles. You're listening to Energy Matters. The electric car revolution is coming, and the choices are growing. Gem cars are everywhere. You've seen these low-speed electric vehicles on college campuses, downtown Atlanta streets, and resort islands like St. Simons and Jekyll. Gem cars are street legal, equipped with seatbelts, headlights, and a tag, and can operate on roads with speed limits of 35 miles per hour or less. If you want to know more about these electric cars and trucks, six-passenger shuttles, mobile repair service, or full vehicle wraps, go to GemCarService.com. That's G-E-M, CarService.com. Logan Booker here, producer of Energy Matters, and I want to tell you about the Advanced Power Alliance. For more than 20 years now, the Advanced Power Alliance has been leading the energy transition in America's traditional energy states. They advocate for wind energy, solar power, and energy storage, all while partnering with traditional resources to ensure that America has abundant, affordable, cleaner energy to power our homes, our lives, as well as our economy. With the growth of solar and advanced storage and power generation technologies, every state now has the opportunity to be a leading energy state. Advanced Power Alliance is proud to partner with the Georgia Large Scale Solar Association and work with the Public Service Commission, Georgia Power, and their customers as Georgia continues to be one of America's leading renewable energy states. You can learn more about the Advanced Power Alliance at poweralliance.org. That's poweralliance.org. You've heard about Gem Cars on Energy Matters. Made by Polaris in Anaheim, California. These street-legal, small electric vehicles go where golf carts are not allowed. Equipped with seatbelts, headlights, optional doors, and a tag, Gem Cars and trucks are perfect for shuttles, corporate, or college campus use. In fact, Georgia Tech has over 100 of them. The new generation Gems have many options when selecting the battery type, onboard chargers, and enclosures to suit the climate. Go to GemCarService.com to find out more. That's G-E-M, CarService.com. Marlin Gas Services, a premier mobile pipeline solutions company for over 23 years, is hiring drivers. Join a team of experienced and OQ-endorsed hazmat drivers in their brand new truck fleet. Marlin Gas Services schedules their haul so you are on the road less and at home more. This top workplaces awarded company prioritizes your health and safety and offers a comprehensive benefits package, overnight incentive pay, and a $5,000 signing bonus. Join us. Apply today at MarlinGasDrivers.com. Hey, Tim Eccles back with another segment with Andrew Dunn, Casey Boyce, uh, talking about uh, solar, talking about batteries, lots of things. Casey, uh, I've got to give a shout out here to one of his former employees, uh, Andrew went to UGA, went to California, you know, worked for a number of companies, Recurve, uh, worked for Harney, he worked for Solar City, which has a must connection, but then came back to Charleston, as all sh- good Southerners should, uh, come back to the South and worked for Southern Current, started by a couple of UGA guys. Casey, you remember the Sapelo Solar Pavilion that I kind of organized and had donated to the Hog Hammock Foundation to power mm-hmm. the library. It was Southern Current that donated all those panels. Very cool. And Andrew, you you were very early on with Southern Current, right? Right. Upon returning from the West Coast and having experience in the solar industry, I joined my 
my old friends from the University of Georgia and yeah, was the third employee. Wow. And over about six years, we grew the company quite a bit. Well, tell us a little bit about ITRON. And I, 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 I get a lot of e- email from them as a commissioner and see them at the Nehru conference they sponsor uh, at our uh, uh, conference, which is coming up in San Diego. Uh, we have three meetings per year. Tell us about that company and your role as business growth manager. Excellent. Yeah, so ITRON is a global technology company based in Washington State with a presence all over the world. Uh, it's been a really great experience working at ITRON for about a year and a half now. And I uh, support teams in North America, so in Canada and the U.S. primarily. And ITRON, um, as a technology company, provides devices such as smart meters, which you have on a lot of the buildings you know, throughout the U.S. with certain utilities. Also, networks for communications across the you know, smart metering infrastructure and also outcomes, so programs and different grid edge solutions, um, things like smart cities and lighting solutions and also uh, clean energy and um, decarbonization electrification solutions like demand response and electric vehicle and fleet solutions. Casey, uh, we talk about smart everything on this this show, but I was with a a city the other day. I'm not going to name the city. They were, I wouldn't say bemoaning the fact they didn't have smart meters, but they were quick to tell me they didn't have smart meters. Therefore, they couldn't do some of these things. And they felt a little bit handicapped. And frankly, if we started doing smart meters in 07 and 08, they are really behind the curve. Yeah, it's funny because I, I talked to uh, one of my clients, which is one of the largest investor-owned utilities in the country that does not have smart meters and have a very similar conversation where they can't do certain things or don't think they can uh, until they've got smart meters in place. And, and Andrew, I was really curious to kind of get your thoughts thoughts on this right because you know when you if you go back and you know listeners may not you know uh, be aware of this history there's no real reason to be um, but when smart meters were first introduced Tim I don't know if you remember California was uh, much like we talked about with solar and some of these other things kind of the leading edge and there were all of these promises of things that smart meters would do for customers and really not much change when the smart meters first got installed. You're saying um, they were dumb when they, when they, they first were, they arrived. They were basically dumb, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, and they were you know kind of overhyped to customers. Um, that being said, I mean, I think uh, you know utilities have found a way to use the smart meters to do things like proactive outage communications, right? So when the power goes out at your home, they know immediately you don't have to call in and say, hey, my power's out. They know they can do an assessment really quick quickly. Um, you know, it allows things like, you know, we, you've talked a, a lot about the Georgia Power prepay program, right? You can do that using smart meters with their remote connect disconnect. So there are some customer facing programs that really are valuable that that utilities have figured out, you know, how to use the smart meters. But it still seems like maybe the, the initial promise of smart meters hasn't really been fulfilled. And I'm curious, kind of being in that part of the industry, Andrew, like, what do you see the future of the smart meters and the, the network and, and kind of some of that sure. ecosystem that you guys provide looking like from the consumer standpoint? Right. Yes. And uh, I have good perspective on that, because when I started my career in efficiency and building performance, it was in California, we were starting to roll out smart meters. I'm very familiar with the smart meters from iTron because of that as well as when I joined in the first few months with iTron someone knocked on my door in Charleston and came and installed my new generation iTron smart meter west coast east coast 15 year lag right so that's that somewhat of that delay and so even you know there's every so you know few decades people need to replace their smart meters you know they're they're going to need to be replaced at some point right so people are in some stage of their journey either they haven't replaced them like you said or they replaced them 10 years ago which in some cases may not necessarily be as better depending on the type of technology and what's needed for us it was all about getting granular data access as a, as a vendor back when i was doing efficiency and building performance work we were excited about getting that you know digital data and being able to get in and see the signatures a little better and really understand what what appliances and things are doing beyond that you know having access to processing more data at the, at the grid edge and really moving a lot of the capabilities out you know to the meter gives you this whole new smart grid capability um, and it is it is looking a little bit more leaning into the future and it's like a leading really indicator of where we're going to have a smart more interconnected grid so that's that's really more of it's where we're going yeah andrew in a, a show a couple weeks ago casey and i were talking about hvac units mm-hmm working too hard having to try to catch up and and essentially raising people's power bills because 
they've got an inefficient system. And the granular data that you were just mentioning that allows you to see things, uh, and you don't know that I was going to ask this question, but it just yeah. just kind of hit me that, you know, I wonder how many people out there that have an HVAC <laughs> unit sitting outside on a pad at their at their at their house, not a window unit. I'm just mm-hmm. thinking of you know a, a central air unit, so to speak. How many of those systems are degraded to the point where it's driving up their bill disproportionately? You think it's half? You think it's only a quarter? You think it's more than half? I mean, what what would you just uh, you know, yeah, uh, it's you a, guess at. it's a lot, and it's a very heavy load. So, more up and closer to a half uh, in that level because there's older systems. So, on all the systems, really degrade as you say quickly, and they're often not maintained. And so, you get a loss of performance annually, and over that, you know, say five or ten year period. Um, and back in, when I was in the industry, looking at systems like that, you know, people take a lot of pride in just kind of letting their equipment just kind of run out its useful life. So it could be using two to five times as much power as what's really needed. So if you were giving people advice in Georgia here, who's getting you know much higher power bills now because it's summer, it's 100 degrees or more outside, and they're sitting here going, what do I do? And I mean, if they call an HVAC company for a, a checkup, a service, a service run, what do they need to ask them to do when they come in to look at their system to make these evaluations? Well, often an HVAC company might not be able to provide all of what that consumer needs. They may need a little bit more insight into how the house is performing, but you know, knowing the age and the useful life of the equipment is helpful to know how much waste there is in power. And then also having the system maintained and cleaned properly can help save a lot. And then just knowing the right time to invest in upgrades to ducting or the HVAC system so it's not wasteful, not losing power, and making sure that you make that investment now rather than 10 or 15 years down the line because it's really future-proofing your life and your home. So, Tim, Andrew was talking about getting some more uh, some more granular data out of these smart meters, right? And one of the things that you know we've uh, looked at in our work is from a customer program standpoint is notifications around HVAC service. So, wouldn't it be great if you've got the smart meter on your home and it notices that you know the startup current draw or you know the the overall power that's being used by your HVAC has gone up, and it sends you a notification just like you can get a high bill notification from the utility today, but says, hey. Tim, you might want to go get your HVAC service. We're noticing that there's an issue there. Mm. You can actually do that with some of this data is understand wow. kind of what's going on in the home. And customers that, you know, that we talk to across the country really like this idea of an HVAC service notification. It's driven by real data. It's not the annual thing, which, you know, you may well need to do an annual checkup, but it's real data and it tells you in real time, essentially, it's time to call someone out to your home. Kind of like your car might do if you don't exactly. have an electric car. And when it hits that certain mileage, it sends you that notification right there on your dash yep. that your car is going to need maintenance soon. Right. Yeah. So is that what you're saying? That's kind of what I'm saying. Yeah. And and yeah. this could be something that a utility or a third party like iTron or someone else could do. I'll tell you another thing that um, you know we have conversations with our clients about is that none of these utilities know where the electric vehicle drivers are in their uh, territories. Um, and nobody who buys an electric car other than our listeners thinks to reach out to their utility. Um, wouldn't it be great if the utility could say, hey, it looks like you got an electric car. Let me tell you about this time of use program or a public charging program wow. that can help you save money. Yeah. Andrew, just the last uh, minute here, what what message do you have for consumers out there who want to be wiser, better stewards, save money? Uh, focus on energy efficiency first. It can make your you know life healthier and more comfortable while also saving energy. Uh, find ways to invest in renewable energy. Often there's community solar programs that can give real peace of mind and you know really you know, point in the right direction and getting clean power. 
Um, looking to transition to more electric uh, it helps eliminate you know emissions and create a healthier local environment as well. So moving things to electric like heat pumps is a good Casey, idea as well. Absolutely. Great to have you on the show today, Andrew. Well, look, when we come back, we're going to have uh, one final segment as we're doing all summer long and uh, in the fall, just giving out these Energy Matters Sustainability Awards. So we're going to feature another winner. Casey, give credit where credit is due, and we're trying to do that. Yeah, celebrate some of the wins here in Georgia. Some great things going on in our state. Andrew, thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you for having me. And go dogs. Go dogs. Yeah, that's right, Casey. You can't even say that, right? <laughs> Can you try it? Can you just say it? Go dogs. Go dogs. Go dogs. Does it sound convincing? Go dogs. Go dogs. Yeah, they're, they're All right. right. All right. Hey, Tim Eccles, hang around. Got an award ceremony coming up. You're listening to Energy Matters. Gas South believes in the difference we can all make, like the difference in putting people first and showing that you care. For us, our difference is saving people money with our best rates and no deposit, and the difference we make in our community by taking care of our friends and neighbors and giving back 5% of our profits to help children in need. Learn more about what makes us different at GasSouth.com. Gas South. The difference is good. Tim Eccles, host of Energy Matters, here with Jeff Pratt of Green Power EMC. Jeff, more and more EMCs are offering solar to their members, and you're seeing it grow like crazy across rural Georgia. Tim, you're right. Co-ops in Georgia are doing a great job of deploying solar across the state. In fact, they're leaders in the country with respect to engaging customers and deploying large-scale solar to benefit all their members. Hey, contact your EMC and ask them about their solar energy policy, or just Google Green Power EMC. This segment of Energy Matters is sponsored by Hall Booth Smith. This law firm works with over 88 Fortune 500 companies, and they have offices from Brunswick to Athens, Tifton to Columbus, and of course, Atlanta. We'd like to thank Hall Booth Smith for the great work they do with school boards, hospitals, cities, and counties all over our state. See more at hallboothsmith.com. Hey, Tim Eccles back for our last segment, and you guys know that these days we are presenting the Energy Matters Awards, and you've heard me... Uh, present to the city of Hoganville, Andrew Lane, for his uh, sustainability for an individual. Today, we're at Georgia Tech with Sean Aurora. Uh, We're actually back behind the Candida building. If you haven't seen it, you're going to want to after this interview. So, first of all, congratulations, Sean, for earning this great reward, sustainability award for an educational institution. Thank you so much. It's an honor for not only Georgia Tech, but the entire design team that was part of this, um, the creation and operation of this living building. Yeah, so you call it a living building. Why, why, why do you say living? Why is it not just a building? You know, one of the, uh, one of the great things about my role as director of the building um, really is to spread the good news about what we've done here is I get a chance to talk to a lot of individuals. And yesterday, there was a group of 50 high school students that came through. And I asked the question, what is sustainability? And one student raised his hand and he said, it's about homeostasis. And my my eyes just lit up. I said, tell me more. Well, it's about being in a state of equilibrium where you're living in harmony with the natural world. And it's like, absolutely. That is what sustainability is. But have we taken so much from the natural world and given back so much pollution in return that we're no longer in a state of homeostasis? So do we need to have buildings that give back more than they take? And that's the idea of a living building. A living building recognizes that we are no longer in a state of homeostasis where we're living in this balance. So we got to proactively be net positive energy. So the building produces over 200% of its annual electricity needs with on-site solar. But of course, as you know, sir, the first step is hyper energy efficiency. It's net positive water. It returns more water to the watershed than it takes from the city of Atlanta's municipal water system. During the construction process, we diverted more waste from the landfill than we sent to the landfill. And then you know, we started our life by incorporating as much 
locally sourced material as possible to decrease the vehicle miles traveled, which decreases the amount of carbon pollution. And so we started our life as a carbon zero building. You know, this last thing that you mentioned about decreasing the amount of time and the energy that it takes to bring materials came up with the city of Hogansville in their paving project that won the award for for the city because they basically ground up and recycled not just the asphalt, which is normally done, but all of the earthen material and the granite and concrete and everything that was under that road. Right. And they did it on site yeah. uh, with a special machine that cost a lot of money, uh, but it saved all of that diesel, all of that, you know, the, the front end loaders that would have had to load it up. It was all done there. It wound up saving saving diesel fuel. It saved time and it saved money. That's, that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, one of the very interesting things that's come out of COVID is that we as a society have a better understanding about supply chains. Like so many of the supply chains were disrupted because of shutdowns here, there, and everywhere else. And then, you know, the last six months, we've had a lot of uh, international disruptions. Most recently, this conflict in the in, in uh, Eastern Europe. Why don't we just bring some of that manufacturing local? And what you just described is hyper, hyper, hyper local. It's on site. So everything that we dug up on our site, which used to be a parking lot, was recycled. But one of the examples of using stuff that we got from this site right back into the site is the ceiling. The ceiling of this building is built with uh, 2x4s and 2x6s. The 2x6s came in either 8-foot span or 12-foot span, and we needed 10.5 feet. So we had these 1.5 feet end caps that normally would have been thrown away but because of the ethos of the living building challenge of having a building begin its life, having diverted more waste from the landfill than it sent to the landfill, we looked at these 18 inches and said, what can we do? And we turned them into stairs. We used it in the building. Wow. Wow, that, that, that's incredible. As you kind of described the, the parking lot that was here before this building, it makes me wonder if, you know, as, as we tackle projects, maybe we need to have more collaboration with people uh, that have the end in sight. So if we're if if we're going to be tearing up a parking lot, maybe we need to have the architect, the consultants, and everyone you know there. And maybe you did. Maybe that's maybe that's part of the success of this is that you you had those people here as you were beginning, even before you began, right? Right. Uh, in order to get a fully certified living building. You have to approach it as a multidisciplinary um, approach. Like let's let's take a, let's take an example of the truck that we're in right now. When this truck was conceptualized, it was not conceptualized in silos. The folks who are experts with the drivetrain sat down with folks who are experts with the chassis and the folks who know how to make an interior, and they worked together collaboratively. They didn't work in their separate silos and come together on the factory floor and realize, oops, we should have talked with each other. But in many ways, that's how buildings are made. The, the trades know how to do their thing, and they come in and they do their thing, but is it optimized? One of the reasons why 30%, on average, of a new building's construction material gets thrown away, 30% gets thrown away, it's because people don't take the time to just work together. And so if you had a coordinated approach and the entire step of the way, everybody understands the mission. The mission is, in this one particular example, we got to divert more waste from the landfill than we send to the landfill. So who was it that saw those end pieces on those boards and said, we can make stairs out of this? So the general contractor is, is responsible for that construction. The general contractor is seeing all of these end pieces. The general contractor goes back to the design team, which includes the architects, and says, hey, what are we going to do with these? The architect said, well, we were going to make these stairs out of, uh, you know, new wood. Why don't we just change our drawings and use, incorporate these end caps? So it was a minor tweak, and it was done uh, because it furthers the mission. 
let's talk about some of the other things in this living building. I mean, I've heard of net zero buildings, right? I've heard of buildings that are, you know, that are you know, maybe off the grid or buildings that are renewable. What? Tell, tell me about some of the other features of a living building. We spent, as Americans, we spend about 90% of our time indoors. And that was a figure before the pandemic. So just when you think about the amount of time we spend indoors, what are we doing to make sure the buildings help the average person be happier and healthier? A fully certified living building has health and happiness of occupants and folks who are adjacent to the building as one of the things that we got to think about. So when you come to the Candida building, either in person or virtually, livingbuilding.gatech.edu will allow you to visit the building virtually. You'll see we have lots of windows, lots of natural light. You have views to the exterior. You can see trees. You can see birds. You can see flowers. Then um, another aspect of health and happiness is when, when we buy packaged food, you can turn it on the back and see the nutrition and if you have an allergy, it's going to jump right out. Contains nuts, contains soy. Well, what's in the air that you breathe inside of a building? What's in the materials that you're touching? Because the paint's going to off-gas, and these materials are going to off-gas or have some type of health impact to the communities that made it. And so one of the, one of the key features and one of the most difficult things we had to do is we had to vet every single permanent item of this building against what's called the red list. And it ends up being about 700 plus, almost 800 chemicals that are just not good. We don't, we don't want them. Uh, we've heard of some of them, like forever chemicals, um, asbestos, obviously lead, but other things I'd never heard of before. And so we vetted it, and to the greatest extent possible, this building doesn't have it. So a living building really looks at that statistic. 90% of people spend their time indoors and says purposefully, how do we make those people happier? If you're just joining us here in this last segment, I've got Sean Aurora here. We're behind the Candida building. He's getting the award today on behalf of Georgia Tech for uh, the Sustainability Award for Educational Institutions for the Candida building. Uh, Tell us uh, one more time where folks can take that virtual tour and slow it down. (laughs) Thank you. Living building gatech.edu there you're going to get a video tour you're going to be able to do a virtual tour you can walk through the building like Google Street View but walk through the building Uh, and if you're the type of individual who likes to do a deep dive reading click on the living building challenge and we break out how we accomplished all seven of the petals Uh, The Living Building Challenge uses the flower as a metaphor. You know, flowers give back more than they take. So you can go to that website and get all the information you need. Well, there you have it. We're going to step out, get a photo here. Uh, The rest of you listening uh, in, you got to go and take a virtual tour. Even better, come down to the Tech Campus and uh, and take a a real tour. You're going to be really surprised. So once again, Sean, congratulations for the fantastic work you guys are doing here. Thank you. It's an honor. Hey, this is Tim Eccles. You've been listening to Energy Matters. Have a great weekend, everyone. Energy Matters would like to thank GasSouth for its support of the show. GasSouth has a no-deposit policy and offers some of the lowest per-therm rates in the state. Use the promo code MATTERS for a special deal. GasSouth, the difference is good. Tim Eccles of Energy Matters here for Solar Sun World. No doubt you've seen solar panels popping up all over the state. If you want the precision of German engineering when it comes to solar, Solar Sun World is for you. Gerd and all the folks at Solar Sun World understand the complexities of solar and how to make it work for you. From tax credits to inverters to accelerated depreciation, they'll advise you on the best path forward. And Solar Sun World now offers power purchase agreements. Find them at solarsunworld.com, solarsunworld.com. Everyone has tough times in their life. By checking the project share box at the bottom of your utility bill, you can make life a little easier for your neighbors. Your $1, 2 or $5 checkoff is matched by the utility and then used by the Salvation Army to help folks having a tough time paying their energy bills. It's that easy. Join PSC Commissioner Tim Eccles and many others by donating via your power bills this year. 
See more by clicking projectshareinfo.com. And thank you. There's a highway that stretches across the 93 days of summer where worship isn't offered to the sun, but to the smoking tire, the S-curve, and the spin turn. And if you ride it, make sure you do it in a Dodge Charger, Challenger, or Durango. Because on this highway, the lines being blurred are the ones between drivers and demons. Welcome to Highway 93. Dodge is a registered trademark.